Hello everyone and welcome to the ninth episode in the second series of The New Romantics, which is your monthly or thereabouts podcast about the intersection between science and literature, specifically neuroscience and literature, with me, Will Eves, a novelist and poet, and Sophie Scott, a cognitive neuroscientist and director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. Each month we look at a scientific paper and a short story or a poem or an excerpt from a novel and we try to gauge where the two very different disciplines and bits of writing intersect and speak to each other. If you like what you hear and haven't already switched off, can you please like the podcast wherever you pick it up and subscribe? That would be marvellous. Sophie, over to you to introduce the paper. Thank you very much, Will. So. This is a paper about brains and testosterone. And I was interested in it because I've been trying to get my head around the relationship between brains and testosterone. And it is not as simple as the relationship between bodies and testosterone and and estrogen, for that matter. I thought I'd suggest this paper as a way of me trying to find out more about it, trying to kind of get to grips with it. So one of the things that's very interesting about testosterone isn't just that it's present both in men and in women, but it's also present in much higher levels in men than in women. And it has a masculinizing effect on the body in utero and in development. And it also has an effect on the brain. But one of the interesting things about the effect that it has on the brain is that it is often, in fact, frequently having its effect, and here certainly in mammal brains, not as testosterone. It gets what's called aromatized into an estrogen called estradiol, and that's where it has its effects in many parts of the brain. And I was interested in sort of finding out more about this and trying to understand what that means, because, for example, one of the outcomes of this is that if you, um, because women go through the menopause and they have tanking levels of oestrogen. By the time you have, if you had a man and a woman who are both 60, there will be more oestrogen in the brain of the man than there will be in the brain of the woman because he's turning a considerable amount of his testosterone in his brain into oestrogen. What? what? Fascinating, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's fascinating at, at all levels of what is the precursor, what's the fundamental hormone? Mm. at work here. If it's the case that testosterone is aromatized, transformed by the process of an enzyme um, called aromatase into estradiol, then which hormone is it that's actually masculinizing the brain? Well, it's an estrogen. Certainly in the bigger picture here of this is an effect that you find in mammal brains. I mean, this is quite a revolutionary finding isn't it i mean it's, it's it's extraordinary it hasn't been one of those papers that has made it onto the uh, you know the front of the as it were the popular papers because it suggests that and they go into some detail about this that all the things that we thought were regulating not just what we're calling the masculinization of the brain but um specifically male behaviors and um sexual preferences and heterosexual preferences those things don't necessarily 
belong to the active presence of testosterone, but to its transformed partner hormone, mm. estradiol. In which case, you wonder whether those things can be done in the absence of testosterone. And in fact, it turns out, I think, in parts of the paper that it can. Yes. I mean, it's a very, very complex relationship and I can't begin to do justice to that. But I think one of the one of the things that I find it useful to think about, because we get told that testosterone is male and oestrogen is female. And I think that we probably have to let some of that go when we're thinking about this. So it's possible that oestrogen has, and actually they talk about this in the paper, when in development, the masculinization of, of a body part, say the brain, does not necessarily have to imply that it is also defeminized. They're two separate yeah. things. So it's not like a, a spectrum where you have male at one end and female at the other and this body part is being sort of modified in one direction or the other. It could be at the same time something is being masculinised and it's also being defeminized, or it could also be feminized. What it's actually describing is an almost amphibious relation um, to each other, that, that really these, these two properties, these two hormones are mutually defining. And if you have one, it can become the other. Mm. And the behaviours normally associated with one can be replicated in the present soul of the other. It's quite, it's an interesting yeah. mutuality that's being described rather than a polarity. There's probably some, some things that are worth thinking about here in terms of relating this to humans and to human behaviours. So quite a lot of the evidence they're talking about is in terms of what they term like the, the control of sexual behaviour. And of course, that has a very different meaning if you are a mouse than if you are a human. <laughs> thank um, the Lord, <laughs> thank really. Lord. It's yeah. so much more interesting. What you can find is a very sort of direct hormonal control of behaviour in other mammals, particularly, um, you know, once you get outside of, well, outside of humans, possibly, but so that you would, in the, in, in certain situations with certain stimuli, there'll be very kind of, um, very specific sexualized behavior that you will find in male and female versions of, say, say your mice or your, your sheep. And there will be some variation. A lot of sheep, actually, most sheep would be, I think, technically termed as queer. Most sheep are well, not straight. Well, but there are, I think they said nine to ten percent of rams yes. are uh, exhibit male preference, solely male preference. Another twenty percent of rams are bisexual, and a good good number of rams are completely asexual. Well, I don't know, Sophie. It doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> Is so. I mean, there's another whole story here about what what that means and how you would just. But it, so here's here's a really interesting example. The people who study because there is a lot of research into the rams because it costs people money. You might mm. buy a ram because you want to sort of have lots of lambs, and then that ram is not interested in females at all, which is statistically very likely with your rams. Well, I had to hold a ram in the back of a car all the way across Belgium once. I went to visit my uncle's friend um, <laughs> who was a sort of dropout monk um, who'd got married. You know, a bit like Maria in Sound of Music, only males, all that estradil. And he'd become a farmer and uh, he had a flock of sheep. He didn't have a ram. So uh, we had to go and pick up this ram. Now, 
you know, what you're saying is exactly true because, you know, the, the guy selling it to Bernard said, you know, listen, there's no guarantee mm. that actually this ram is going to do the business, I'm afraid, but, you know, it's given, it's, it's been, he's been good for us. Yeah. And then we got hold of him. He only had one testicle. So not only is it, you know, not only is it, frankly, a bit unlikely that he's going to be interested in the use, he only had one testicle. <laughs> not that that, really. Anyway, sorry, it's a digression. But it is really interesting with the rams. So people have done studies of the brains of the, the, the different, you know, particularly the, the straight rams and the solely gay rams. And they do find that some of these areas that are involved in this kind of direct control of sexual behaviour are different. They, are, they seem to be more feminised in the rams that are only interested, sexually interested in other rams. However, they behave like straight rams. Their sexual behaviour is the same. Their target is different. Mm. So yeah. they don't behave like female rams. Confused, sorry, female Female sheep. Female sheep, when they're showing sexual interest, stand completely still, which is <laughs> best ambiguous <laughs> <laughs> sort of clue. But they right. the, the male rams don't do that. What they want Horrified to do is... Horrified <laughs> by what's about to happen to them. <laughs> Here we yeah. go. Yeah. They, um, the... the, the, the the male rams who are interested in in sexually interested in other male rams are they behave in they they they, they do mounting they do poor mm. forelimb pouring they do flemings they 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 behave like a male. Well, I think straight male. The the business of the kind the and this is where I think there is a, a close correspondence with social studies the social studies of um, gay male behaviour and sort of the difference between male sexualization and male sexual behaviours. Because one also finds that a, a common, sometimes compensatory motif in gay behaviour in the past has been hypermasculinization to compensate for the perceived nature mm. of the target. Now, one's bringing consciousness of one's role as a human into play there. So it's not simply a matter of, you know, the four square target, but about um, social perception of the target and what it means to mm. be gay rather than straight. But nonetheless, it's very, very important, isn't it, to distinguish between something that appears to be social and something that is innate, mm. to separate this business of the target. It's a bit weird talking about, you know, a sexual mate as a target, but we're mostly talking about animals, so maybe that's OK. And the behaviour exhibit in order to attract them, actually. Yeah. That's interesting. And that's something that changes, that is to do with nurture, certainly in humans, because for a long time, the straight perception of gay male behaviour was that it was feminised. Yes. And effeminate. Yes. And I think that has been largely retired as a thesis, because, of course, it can be all sorts of things. Yeah. It, it may be that, um, but it may also be hyper-masculine, and it can be anything in between. Mm. And similarly... Um, with uh, gay women, the, the spectrum of describable behaviour far exceeds the sort of the unitary nature of the target or, yeah. or, or, or yeah. whoever it might be that they're interested in. And I think we're, we're pretty late to that party I think as so. social scientists. And I think that, I mean, I don't know. I think one of the things that I find very interesting about this area, and it's so when I was first doing my PhD, that paper came out arguing that... Um, gay male brains 
had some feminine aspects in terms of how they were and this this was thought to be something that you know this is like an anatomical study and this was held as being very important because it suggested that choice wasn't important that it was this is you know you're born this way your brain is like that and actually certainly for gay men the evidence does seem to be pretty strong that it's a preference that is fairly unchanging emerges young and doesn't have preference the wrong phase orientation interest sexual interest social things have to be modulating this because everything's modulated socially for humans but in terms of the one way or the other that a very straightforward binary that that is a very early preference and it can be a very early preference for some women as well it's just that it can also be more flexible but if you ask men are you gay or straight you tend to get very sort of two distributions of responses and obviously bisexual men exist i'm not saying that but there's there's a sort of a less of a bump in the middle whereas women it tends to be more of a kind of a, a flatter profile so there are straight women and gay women but there are women who are kind of somewhere in between um and there are you know that that does seem it does seem to be a more potentially more flexible thing it doesn't mean to say that it couldn't also be a very early orientation as well we have and we haven't dealt with that very well even starting to think about the complexity of that as you say let alone the preference for actually how you then live your life with that and what works for you in terms of being yourself with that identity i mean the question that that occurs to me is is that early preference laid down if you like in in the hormonal activity that affects the brain because even at that very early stage we are responding to our environment and to availability or what we think will be future availability of partners and can that change if you are born into a situation or society where actually the social behaviours are rather different and there is no taboo attached to adolescent homosexuality, for example, mm. or um, intense female socialisation and homosociality. There are, anthropologically, there are so many cases in which this has been true mm. in small-scale, often remote environments that, I don't like using the word tribal, but you know those, those, those small environments... Uh, where it's very important to reproduce the element of practice that's involved in trying out sex with your members of your own sex mm-hmm. before you mate is ter- is very important. There was a very interesting book called Brainstorm by a woman called Rebecca Jordan Young, who doing research into HIV in America in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, and the number of men that she was working with who had sex with men but didn't call themselves gay. And that was, and, and she said, this is a class of behaviour that we don't, we're not even beginning to pretend we've even noticed scientifically because we're following a label and an mm, identity. Mm. So what what is that? Exactly, exactly like you say, if people do do these things and they, and they don't think of it as part of a, a larger sexual orientation, what what is it? Yeah, what is it in terms of? I mean, it's it that it, denial is a, is a, is a, is a judgmental epithet but it's also a definitionally it's a bit more complex isn't it mm. i mean broadly speaking it's always been it's it seemed evident to me that partly because of maternal caring activities sensuality and tactility and physical connection between bodies you know suck, breastfeeding suckling is so much a part of almost rote female behavior that 
we don't think of it as having we don't think of it as sexual behavior yeah. but of course it is yeah it is late stage sexual behavior it's it's the consequence yeah attached to sexual behavior and i think that when we talk about promiscuity amongst men it's interesting that we use the phrase consequence free promiscuity yeah because we see sexual behavior in the male as being terribly concentrated and and short term and it's not part of a sort of long if you like gestation yeah and i think if you were to open out that timeline mm. for male sexual activity you would have a very different understanding of masculinity actually things that hadn't really occurred to me until I was pregnant and I had a child is how sounds stupid but it's such an intensely physical relationship that you have with that child from before they're born mm-hmm. and and it is physically close and that's we're mammals you know we nurse we we have these helpless infants that absolutely have to be looked after so you have to be you know that one of the main ways of doing that is through physical yeah not even closeness you know physically holding to your body that is what comforts them that is what they want and as you said it's not sexual but it is in a it is a it's an intensely physical emotional connection that is not as you say it has its roots in sex and we don't think of it in that way because it's so you know we like to think of some lovely mothers and their lovely babies but it is it's a it is as close a physical relationship and when you think then of um the not just the kind of copulatory behaviours in in males um, across the mammalian repertoire, but but also the notion of you know masculinization. It becomes clear that aggressive qualities uh, in men, which testosterone and now we think actually estradiol also is there <laughs> to sort of create, also has its connection to sexual definition and behaviour, because the fighting. And if you look at if you look at two boxers and you look at those hugs and then you look at the extraordinary explosion of aggression mm. uh, and how close the embrace is to slaughter really yeah. and to defeat and then you think of what that means in dare I say an evolutionary environment which is getting rid of the competition so that you know you have a better chance of procreating mm. then you see that it is actually a sexual behaviour. It's really interesting in this. So there's in my field, there's a lot of interest. There are there sex differences in in spatial abilities? Are there sex differences in language? Are there sex differences in IQ? And this paper just goes, these are the sex differences, aggressive behavior and sexual preferences. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that that is what they mean. Sexual sexualized behavior in terms of behaving in a way to get sex or receive sex and and aggression or absence of aggression. On those two points, I have been looking into a little bit into the literature on this from the sort of brain sciences and humans, because as I say, always, you know, from, from my field, it's always about kind of all, oh, you know, men are good at systematizing and women empathizing and that kind of thing. And they, where Where is this stuff? So I have looked a little bit into this and there are studies of sexual orientation because most 
men are interested sexually in women and most women are sexually interested in men. It is one of the biggest sexual, sorry, behavioural differences between men and women that exists. And no one's actually looked at it in terms of brain function. Mm. What they do is they compare gay men and straight men because we want to understand those strange gay men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and the same with aggression. There are very few studies looking at aggression just as actually contrasting aggression between mm. males and females mm. in, using brain imaging techniques. I think I found one that actually addressed this as a sexualized behavior. It's often not even mentioned that it's something that differs. Yeah. So it's like a there are these two different worlds where we address sex-related differences, not gender, sex-related differences in the brain. And the, the animal world, they're just like, yeah, it's sexual behaviour and aggression. That's it. We haven't raised the gender as it's currently discussed in sociology and literature and politics, partly because it's, it's an extremely, not just dimorphic, but, you know, a very, very complex word, and very complex concept. But I think what we could say is that the contest as it's seen uh, in many quarters now between sexual determination and gender behaviour, one of the reasons that it's arguably wrong or slightly off, we, we think of gender as being extremely contingent. That bit we're, we're on board with, you know, and it's to do with in environment and role and, mm. and, and any number of other things and economics and, you know, the, the prevailing winds of social categorization but actually what we've got wrong is that it's sexual determinism is real but it is also highly contingent mm. and highly reactive and that's the bit that we've not yeah i think it's quite looked at i think well maybe we should just come back to this on a on another podcast because I think there is so much more to talk about here but I think we've been we're at the same time both very binary in our thinking about aspects of sex and aspects of gender and I would say we I mean scientists and also very unquestioning of it and because it's one of those areas where people rock up with very strong personal experiences and beliefs and political perspectives you end up with less of an emerging clarity mm -hmm. in terms of the picture. And in fact, if anything, it just starts to get messier and messier. Mm. So I have, I'm certain you could have a very interesting scientific discussion around gender, but I think you would really need to be, and by, again, scientists concerned would need to be, be able to sort of step away from what they, from, from simple and trite assumptions, like, well, surely all women are like that, or yeah. all men do this. You and know? part of what this paper does actually is it, it loosens our ties to terminology yep. and terminological assumptions. So that what we think of as being the the male masculinizing hormone turns out to be something rather different. Yeah. And indeed that its effects can be reproduced by um, estrogen without the intervention yes. of testosterone. It, actually, this is not this is this is really interesting. Just throw this in as the last thing, and it's a link to literature. In in Greek myth, a really, really important kind of starting point that's that's behind creation myths is primordial female cosmogony what's the idea cos well the, the birth of the cosmos okay. you know, where, where does the cosmos come from and it doesn't come from um an interaction between you know a male god and a female it comes from a primordial feminine mm. being okay and, that, and that's true also in the in in the sort of um the hinterland of abrahamic literature and myth too there's a very interesting idea that it's Although the, the the male father 
is responsible for the fertilizing seed. It's actually the female entity, and this is true across a lot of religions, mm. who brings about the world in the first place, mm. without whom nothing happens. The pieces of literature we've we've chosen, there are a number, we may not get to them all, but we're going to start with something which we might think of as being quintessentially male and quintessentially 1950s, um, which both Sophie and I have a sneaking regard for. And it's the work of Ian Fleming, whose most famous creation, James Bond, is on his is an absolute peerless form in this novel, Diamonds Are Forever, which is written in 1956. So it's one of the kind of earlier novels... And um, this is a lovely edition, um, mid-90s, with a preface by uh, Anthony Burgess. And what surprised me about looking at this chapter, which deals with Bond flying to America. So the, the plot of Diamonds Are Forever is nothing really like the plot of the film. It's loosely about Bond trying to break a chain of diamond smugglers from Sierra Leone to the USA. And uh, he goes undercover as one of the smugglers, and hooks up with one of them, Tiffany Case, and then it's about his interactions with the CIA once he gets to America. All the names crop up in the film, but in vastly different roles. Yes. The book has this wonderful chapter which is just devoted to getting to America, to flying in the BOAC airliner to Ireland, refuelling and dining, and then moving on to New York. And it's an extraordinary gender ritual really mm. because so much of it is about a kind of fussy dandyish attention to detail and to brand name luggage and packing your underwear and making sure all your bits and pieces are in the right place and silk pajamas and not two piece pajamas but a long silk silk coat, coat. Quite extraordinary. And, and, and this is, is, is presented as being sort of defiantly heterosexual. Yeah. But then we meet one of the homosexual thugs who crop up later in the story on the plane. And because this person is afraid of flying and is slightly overweight, they're definitely homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> but never mind the fact that Bond goes on about nylon underwear. Yeah. You know, that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's years since I read it. I remembered, I, I went through a real Ian Fleming phase when I was in my 20s, and those like shopping lists of things, the Turnbull and Nasser shirts and the everything, everything named, where you could, pigskin. Sea places. Island cotton shirts. Yes. Yeah. And the colour and the intensity and the perfection of it. And it, was, it seemed like, you know, in the 80s, which is when I read it, like that was the sort of thing you associated with you know, shopping and fucking novels. That would be, yeah. you know, whereas this is completely differently presented, but absolutely seriously. And it's just setting up like the intense glamour. Exactly, intense glamour, uh, but also intense. There's a lot in it really about class too. I mean, yeah. I think it was Cyril Connolly, uh, critic, and who who pointed out that Bond is is essentially a dandy. Yeah. And that there's something rather camp about him. Mm. He wrote a famous essay called Bond Strikes Camp, which um, Fleming was very offended by. But of course, if you see pictures of Fleming, and, and Bond is an idealised version of it, his author, that's, right. that's very clear from the start. And you see there's a famous portrait of Fleming with a cigarette in a cigarette holder, <laughs> lying back, looking 
looking, you know, as gay as the day is long, <laughs> to be to be frank. Uh, and there's a lot there's a lot of that in Bond, but of course it is it's historical. It is associated with with the dandy as a figure who is not necessarily gay, but is flamboyant. Yeah. And flamboyance only acquires its homosexual connotations quite late on. It doesn't really mean that earlier on, not even in the 17th century, I think. No. What it means is something much more economic-based, which is that this person has means, and they have means and they are therefore desirable, even if it turns out they're not very good as lovers, which is normally the sort of, the sort of case. It's not so much about being gay as being viable. Yeah. That's the history of the dandy from the sexual point of view. And interestingly here, Bond is super viable, it is thought, as a, as a sort of sexual partner, hence all the women. But he is also a dandy. Mm. And that's where the sort of the, the class and the economics become quite important, you know, in the stories. Have I misremembered this? Or was there always quite a lot of chat about his health and his body with M and other have I, have I just removed this if I've totally misremembered it? There's No, there is quite a lot of chat. Of, well, he's a, he's a hard drinker, but he's not an addict. And he's very he's very sure about the fact that he's not an addict. But he and that's part of his psychological interest is that he doesn't see he doesn't see his tolerance for alcohol and the drugs that he does take as drugs at mm. all. So again, the big D. He takes benzedrine. Yeah, yeah. He takes benzedrine. That's a very common thing. And again, that's a, that has a sort of you know Mediterranean jet set class, mm. you know, uh, meaning attached to it. Mm. The bond of the books is a much subtler concoction than the films, or indeed our joshing quite will allow, because he, you know, he's he's pretty much he, he's a sort of upper class. He's there's an element of the dandy about him. He's been to Sandhurst and so on. But he is also someone who doesn't fit in in the English caricature of the upper class gen. He doesn't he's not at home mm. really in his own country. And that's very important for the hero as an archetype in history. The hero must always be some kind of outsider yeah. who um is banned from enjoying the fruits of his heroism by virtue of the violence of his code. Yeah. Uh, and so Bond is always on the move, like a, like a sort of Lee Child character, um, or indeed like Odysseus. And he is always at a tangent to England because mm. he is, apart from anything else, half Scots and half Swiss. And he has this sort of fractured European childhood. Yeah. Which makes him at home yeah. in other languages yeah. and other countries. That's very, very important. He's very much a sort of non-binary, intelligent agent who can transform plausibly without losing certain desirable characteristics. Mm. But I think the characteristics are... They're, they're kind of more to do with his enigmatic power than they are really to do with incredibly stable, you know roles or categories or yeah. nationality or anything like that it's about power and attraction and this is so important in the 50s to the average bloke reading it because you've got no money and you've got no hope of going anywhere mm. and you've got this character onto whom you can project money means and um, plausibility with all kinds of people 
you know, we won the war, but we lost the peace. Yeah. This is what Fleming cannily decided we kind of need to hear yeah. it certainly worked. Can we talk about the bit when he, he packs his two pigskin cases and then he spends a lot of time playing with a gun? Now, I... <laughs> Uh, you I, you can criticise Freud for a lot. You know, being penis enemy doesn't always enjoy the greatest <laughs> idea for a theory, but I did sort of think, oh gosh, <laughs> what's going on here? Just going to spend an idle ten minutes sorting this gun out. It is extraordinary, isn't it? And and, and also it goes into great detail about how he cut off the end of it. Yes. So <laughs> he empties sort of, it and fires it. And... It's, a, it's a circumcised gun, isn't it? <laughs> That's, but that is exactly what it is. He's, yeah. he's, he, he's circumcised himself. Shall I just... Please, should, we, should we read that out? Let's see if I can find it. So this is when he's in the Ritz, in his room in the Ritz, um, because he's now undercover. He's, he's also got another flat somewhere else, but he's now undercover. He's in the Ritz. He's about to fly, uh, and he's preparing. He glanced at his watch, 6.25. He looked around the room. Everything was ready. On an impulse, he put his right hand under his coat and drew the .25 Beretta automatic with a skeleton grip out of the chamois leather holster that hung just below his left armpit. It was the new gun M had given him as a memento after his last assignment, with a note in M's green ink that had said, you may need this. I love the fact that it's green ink. (laughs) (laughs) Peculiar, peculiar detail. Bond walked over to the bed, snapped out the magazine and pumped the single round in the chainer out onto the bedspread. He worked the action several times and sensed the tension on the trigger spring as he squeezed and fired the empty gun. He pulled back the breech and verified that there was no dust around the pin which he had spent so many hours firing to a point, and he ran his hand down the blue barrel from the tip of which he had personally sawn the blunt foresight. It's even foresight now. Then he snapped the spare round back into the magazine and the magazine into the tape butt of the thin gun, pumped the action for a last time, put up the safe and slipped the gun back under his coat. I mean, it really is, it's putting on your knickers, isn't it? It is, it's extraordinary. In a way, the most interesting thing is that those first few few words, on an impulse. I mean, it really, it is pretty, I don't, as you say, you don't have to be Freud to see something deeply <laughs> masturbatory in there. Yes, I think, I think you might heart. be onto something there, yes. It's, it is pretty extraordinary. I mean, it happens quite a lot. The odd thing about Bond, though, is that he's he's also such a sort of Puritan. Yes. There's a lot of reward psychology wrapped up in the fact he enjoys himself and he plays cards and he has loads of women and he drinks implausible amounts before having sex all night. He does all these things because the difficulty of his job and its harrowing qualities, which the books don't downplay, mm. means that he has to have um, some fun. So the fun has to be earned. It's very, very important in the books mm. that they're they're not even they're Calvinist actually. That they're, 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 they're hugely sort of Protestant with a capital P. You, you have to earn your right to this indulgence mm. that, that makes you sound that makes it sound catholic but it's scott squist for a reason you know there's yeah. the, the calvinist thing is is important i think you can't be a libertine that's that's out they're peculiar books uh, a lot of them it's a bit you know eye-opening to read them and, and of course you do 
read them with a sense of mild horror. What would someone think if you actually read this out on radio now or various caricatures of gangsters and so on and, and yes. are, are pretty, pretty dreadful. But I think it's important to, to read those things and not flinch for them because the truth is that history will be pretty unkind to us all. Yes, exactly. We're just all you know? on a journey. In that sense, in literary terms, history's unkind to Milton. Yeah. You know, he's a terrible misogynist. Well, is it really the right word? Mm. You know, it's a bit of an anachronism. And I think we have to kind of think a bit more creatively and interestingly about that in terms of literature from the past and not just see it through the correcting lens of the present. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been trying to deal with this scientifically for the past few years because things like... um. So the most common test for testing correlations was developed by a psychologist called Spearman for very racist reasons. And how do we navigate that? What what do we do? He, he was head of the department here, mm-hmm. the psychology department. What do we do with that legacy? We're going to continue mm. using the work because we can't rediscover correlations. That's our, you know, and, and I my view is that we should discuss it. We should be talking about it. We should be teaching the controversy. We should tell the students, this. yeah, this is where it comes from. Pretty much everything in the study of individual differences has it roots in people proving, well, white men proving that women were inferior. Yeah, eugenics, not white. Really. So, yeah. Purely, purely. And, and eugenics. When eugenics was a, the, a new flourishing area of uh, sort of theory around genetics, it was the progressive position to hold. That was not a position held by, yeah. you know, kind of uh, extremists on the, you know, it, it was a progressive view that would go along with the you know, other ways that people thought they'd be bettering the world. It's sobering, I think, to engage with that. And it is, to, because it, and, and, to, and to really get hold of the idea that the view of the data and the view of the discovery is not the same thing as its rational, provable basis. Mm. And perhaps not even the same thing as its utility. Yeah, it's interesting that 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 area of sexual research and and eugenics is an area where one gets very worried about who discovered what and what that says about the information that they were racists or eugenicists. But we don't think about it so much, or with not such alarm, in terms of weapons and technology and rocket power. Yeah, and in fact. You know, the whole of the post-war rocket programme is driven by a cooperation between former Nazi rocket scientists yep. and NASA, yeah. as it was newly constituted. Yeah. Uh, and that's known, but it doesn't seem to offend people as much. No, we're and, quite and, happy and, with the space programme. And it's sort of, yeah. we're quite happy with the space programme. And in, in a way, it ought to be as, a, if, if it's going to be offensive, which I, which I sort of think for the reasons you've suggested it, we have to think carefully about it and 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 not rush to discredit discovery on the grounds that bad people or mm. reprehensible people discovered it. Yeah. If, if that's the case, then we, we need to sort of apply it evenly, otherwise we... Yeah, absolutely. ...we lose sight of what matters. Now, this is interesting. It's an excerpt from a novel by James Baldwin, celebrated black American novelist and nonfiction writer and activist 
fascinating man, fascinating life. And this is his, perhaps his most famous novel, Giovanni's Room, which I think is written at roughly the same time as Diamonds Are Forever, from 1957. And it was an extremely daring bit of writing for the time, and it's still a marvellous book. It's about a, a white American man in Europe whose fiancé is in the south of France preparing for their marriage and thinking they're having a they're having a sort of a separation while she's 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 in the south of France and he's in Paris uh, he's a young man and he begins an affair with an Italian man a waiter and the whole story is told in flashback uh, it, it's a very very tragic tale but it's um but it's completely fascinating uh, as, as an insight into the time and into sort of male sh shame about behaviorisms one of the most ex extraordinary things in it, though, is the clarity of perception of some of the other homosexuals who surround the, the protagonist, David, who talk to him about his preferences and his life mm -hmm. and show how important it is to understand who he is. This is 1957. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered if I could just read out a little bit. Please do. David is in a bar with Jacques, who is an older businessman who's gay and out insofar as the word out has a, has a meaning at this point. And Jacques has seen David talking in the bar and understands that something is beginning. This is the first night in which, you know, later David and, and Giovanni go back to Giovanni's room and begin their affair. But Jacques asks David how he's feeling. How do you feel, he asked me. This is a very important day for you. I feel fine, I said. How do you feel? Like a man, he said, who has seen a vision. Yes, I said, tell me about this vision. I'm not joking, he said. I'm talking about you. You were the vision. You should have seen yourself tonight. You should see yourself now. I looked at him and said nothing. You are how old, 26 or 27? I'm nearly twice that. And let me tell you, you are lucky. You are lucky that what's happening to you now is happening now, and not when you are 40 or something like that, when there would be no hope for you and you would simply be destroyed. <laughs> what is happening to me? I asked. I'd meant to sound sardonic, but I didn't sound sardonic at all. He did not answer this, but sighed, looking briefly in the direction of the redhead. Then he turned to me. Are you going to write to Hella? And Hella is his fiancée. I very often do, I said. I suppose I will again. That does not answer my question. Oh, I was under the impression that you would ask me if I was going to write to Hella. Well, said Jack, let's put it another way. Are you going to write to Hella about this night and this morning? I really don't see what there is to write about. But what's it to you if I do or don't? He gave me a look full of a certain despair which I had not till that moment known was in him. It frightened me. It's not, he said, what it is to me. It's what it is to you and to her and to that poor boy yonder, who doesn't know that when he looks at you the way he does, he is simply putting his head in the lion's mouth. Are you going to treat him as you've treated me? Then there's a bit more of a conversation. And Jack says, Think, said Jack, of the men who have kneeled before you while you thought of something else, and pretended that nothing was happening down there in the dark between your legs. I stared at the amber cognac and at the wet rings on the metal. Deep below, trapped in the metal, the outline of my own face looked upward hopelessly at me. You think, he persisted, 
that my life is shameful because my encounters are. And they are. But you should ask yourself why they are. Why are they shameful, I asked him. Because there is no affection in them and no joy. It's like putting an electric plug in a dead socket. Touch, but no contact. All touch, but no contact and no light. Then he goes on to say, right at the end, this is the extraordinary bit. Love him, said Jack with vehemence. Love him and let him love you. Do you think anything else under heaven really matters? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a very remarkable bit of writing. Yeah. And as I say, very, very brave for the time. He was encouraged not to write it and he was told it would finish his career. Wow. He was so brave on so many fronts. You know, it became very important in the second wave of the civil rights movement too. It became more or less an alcoholic, I think. Uh, and arguably his, his best writing, you know, tailed off after around 1970. It is brilliant because it cuts through. For someone so aware of prejudice and who wrote so brilliantly about it in terms of anti-African-American racism in, in the US, it's so interesting that he, when he writes about homosexuality, he cuts through prejudice and societal assumptions almost as if they don't exist. Yeah, Almost as if they're an irrelevance. Yeah. And that, that I still haven't got to the bottom of. I think that's very interesting about Baldwin. There's something systemic and undeniable and to be unmade and, and to be removed about racism and racist prejudice in America, mm. particularly, but everywhere. There's a quality of his writing about sexuality, almost as if the problems we attach to it are completely illusory, which perhaps brings us back to the paper. Yes, yes, we build up these big structures for masculinizing or feminizing a body and a brain. And then we find that that's not actually, the more you go into it, the less that's, certainly for the brain, yeah. less what you find. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I I thoroughly recommend, actually both novels, I, I, I think Diamonds Are Forever has, has quite a lot to be said for it, if you can see through the, the stuff that sticks in the throat. I was surprised um, at how beautifully written it was. I had forgotten. In fact, more maybe I never even noticed because I was reading the shopping lists and not the description of flying over America. Yeah. Hanging it, in the air for three hours. Hanging, hanging, the idea of just hanging there, that's a brilliant coup, isn't it? Yeah. But of course he was a very, I mean, he was a journalist before he was a, a novelist and, and a very fine journalist too, but for the Sunday Times, I think. The writing is always polished. Mm-hmm. I believe he needed some structural work sometimes in the, in the editing, but it was the, the sentences were very clean. Mm. He's a stylist. Yeah. And he has a marvellous eye for things. The thing that Orwell said is that, you know, if you want to be a writer, the one of the things you should try to do is just sit down and describe factually yeah. the light coming through the window, what it picks out. And he does that sort of thing very, very well. Mm. It also made me incredibly sort of nostalgic for an era of plane travel I never knew which seems now the thought of 40 people getting on a plane yeah. then landing in Ireland for a lovely dinner and setting off again with yeah. sleeping berths sleeping berths oh, and a bar yes. in the plane it's not even first class there's a bar in the middle of the plane yeah it is it is extraordinary isn't it so Diamonds Are Forever is, 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 is a good it's a good plot the stakes are always attached to the real world it's not about megalomania yeah it's about nefarious goings on in you know the real underworld of mm. gangland in america uh, and and they're quite exciting and baldwin is really out on its own as a novel it's it, it, it's 
it is phenomenally well written. Uh, it's extremely distressing. Again, I get sort of historically annoyed with the idea that, oh, I've had enough of kind of gay stories which are tragic. Well, the point is they've been tragic for a reason, yeah. you know, which is to do with ostracization and scapegoating and society, you mm. know, and th that, that is, that is, it is to be expected that, that art will reflect that. Yes. You know, and, and it has been duly transformed over the last 20 or 30 years. And really the point of transformation starts with this one. There's mm -hmm. nothing unusual about this gay affair. No. It doesn't seem exceptional. No. So there we are. Heaven knows what we'll look at next time. Thank you very, very much, Sophie. Thank you very much, Will. I really enjoyed reading, or well, going back to James Bond, which I haven't read for so long, but I really enjoyed reading The, the Baldwin. I had never, I need to go and read the whole book now. It's beautiful. It's a terrific book. And we will see you, dear listener, next time, which will be the last episode in this series. Thank you very much for listening. Do like us on your preferred platform if you can and or subscribe to the podcast. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.